Well, I thank the Lord for the opportunity to introduce our guest speaker today, preaching God's Word, Don Whitney. And uh, before I introduce him, as a matter of fact, I know Eric Raymond was mentioning some resources that are already available online from our conference. There's one, I'm not sure if he mentioned it or not, I was coming in a little late, uh, but I would encourage you to utilize uh, Don Whitney's website, maybe even sign up for his newsletter. It's called biblicalspirituality.org. And if you have a poor memory like I do and you can't remember biblicalspirituality.org, you can just Google Don Whitney and I think that's the first hit you'll find. And he's got some great resources on there, great resources as far as just papers, book reviews and things like that, messages. And you can also, again, sign up for his newsletter and I would commend that to you. Well, Don Whitney comes to us uh, today by way of Louisville, Kentucky. I'm working on it. I didn't say Louisville like a like a Yankee. <laughs> he comes to us from Kentucky, where he is a professor at Southern Seminary and also a leader amongst the faculty there. And that is a story in and of itself about the great things God has done there and is doing there. He comes to us as well as a husband and a father. He comes to us as a significant Christian author in my eyes. Uh, and in the lives of even many of you, as you've benefited from his books, my favorite, I think, is Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He also comes to us, and specifically right now, he comes to us as a pastor. He's uh, had pastoral ministry experience for the last 24 years, and he's coming as a pastor, as a shepherd, to come and preach God's Word for God's glory and for our good. And so let's welcome Don Whitney as he comes to preach God's Word. Thank you, Pat. <clears throat> I'm thankful for many things today, at least of which that I think I have enough voice to get through the last message. But I'm uh, <clears throat> thankful for the hospitality that I've received from uh, you all, especially from uh, Pat, Eric, Chris, the staff, the elders here. Only uh, thing I'm not grateful for is... Um, they were taking me out to eat last night, and me discovering wedged into a corner of a booth, I was surrounded by a bunch of sushi eaters. <laughs> that smelly, disgusting stuff was all around, and I had no means of escape. <laughs> but other than that, they have represented you very well and have been very good to me. <laughs> and I am grateful for the opportunity. I was here in 2004. I'm grateful for the opportunity to return. I rejoice with you in the Lord's provision of this building. And in the work uh, that he is doing in your midst, the seven of God is here. And God is at work building uh, this church, and it's an honor to return. I bring greetings to you from uh, Dr. Moeller uh, at Southern Seminary, uh, my president, Dr. Russell Moore, the dean uh, under whom I serve. And uh, we're grateful for the many mutual friends that we have together, our seminary and your church. Those who many have preached here have preached in our chapel. And, uh, vice versa. So we're grateful for being together for the gospel with you. And I treasure my relationship with this church. I, I think I failed to publicly say two thanks for those who got the cough drops for me yesterday. I wouldn't have made it uh, without them. And it's been very helpful, literally, in helping me get, uh, get through this. And I'm going to take a drink of water now, and this probably won't be the last time. I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews 12 and 1 Timothy 4 while I'm doing that. Hebrews 12. 
First Timothy four. <clears throat> As you're turning, imagine that you are praying and suddenly and unexpectedly an angel, of all things, appears to you. And this angel says to you, if you are a guy, the Lord is giving you a miracle with your pitching arm. You're going to be enabled to throw a new kind of pitch with a baseball. It's going to move and dance something like a knuckleball. It's never been anything quite like it before. Regardless of your age, physical conditioning, or anything else, this miracle is going to be so uh, amazing. That this time next October, you will be pitching in the World Series for the Chicago Cubs. (laughs) Having lived in Chicago for 15 years, I know there's more than one miracle involved there, and it's not just your pitching arm. But, says the angel, you must practice an hour every day. Or, for you ladies, the angel says to you, God is giving you a miraculous singing voice. Unlike anything the world has ever heard, it's going to so take the world by storm. That you will open the World Series at Wrigley Field next year by singing the National Anthem. But you must practice an hour every day. And then poof, the angel is gone. Well, immediately you run outside. You begin throwing the baseball against the side of the building. And you begin singing the National Anthem, whatever it is, hour after hour. It's all you can think about. It's all you want to do because God has told you to do it. And you're going to be in the World Series. And for the next two weeks, this is all that occupies your mind. And your time. But after a couple of weeks go by, you know, things begin to pile up. But an hour a day, no problem. More than an hour a day is no problem. But another couple of weeks goes by. It's getting about Thanksgiving time. All the things you've not been doing for the past month have begun to pile up. But hour a day, no problem. God told you to do it after all. Well, another couple of weeks go by. We're in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Things are really busy. And on top of that, things have really been backing up. But an hour a day, you... Do it because, after all, God told you to do it. Another couple of weeks go by. It's Christmas time. One of the busiest times of the year. You've got this enormous backlog of things that need to be done. that has been piling up on you. But an hour a day, okay. God told you to do it, after all. It begins to be something you resent a little bit. But you do it anyway. Another couple of weeks go by, and you can hardly make yourself practice an hour a day. Yes, you know, God told you to do it, but God's told you to do a lot of things. He told you to do your work and to take care of your family and to take care of your home and to serve in your church. And He's told you to do a lot of things besides this other, and you greatly resent sometimes this hour a day you have to invest in this discipline. Well, what you need to remember at such times is what you're going to become. You're going to be in the World Series, pitching, singing before the whole world. And when you can remember that, that daily discipline is no drudgery. Any discipline without direction is drudgery. I have students at the seminary, those that are going through their Hebrew vocabulary cards, they're memorizing those Greek verb endings. When they forget the purpose of that discipline, that it's to better interpret and understand the Word of God, it's drudgery. 
And unfortunately, in a similar way, that's the way a lot of Christians have begun to see the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Yes, you know God wants you to be in the Word of God. Yes, you know God wants you to pray. But God has told you to do a lot of things. And those disciplines can be drudgery if you forget the purpose. Not just that God told you to do it, but you have to remember what you're going to become. For the Bible says in Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God is predestined that all is in Christ will be, of all things, made like Christ. Not, as the Mormons believe, not like Christ in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods, but rather we're going to be like Jesus in his sinless, glorified, perfect humanity. Without sin, reflecting the glory of God. And that's no angelic promise. Christian, that's you. Sometime in the future, according to the word of God. Well, if God has predestined that, then why talk about discipline at all? Why does God expect me to discipline myself and engage in these disciplines of the Christian life? Well, there's this little verse tucked away in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 14, which begins with a very active word, pursue. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness, Christ likeness, godliness. Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Actively pursue sanctification, holiness, Christ likeness, godliness without which who will see the Lord? No one, regardless of if they've been in church every day all of their life, regardless of how much money they've given to the church, regardless of how much service they've given to the church. If they are not pursuing holiness, sanctification, Christ-likeness, godliness, they will not see the Lord, the Bible says. And it's because they don't know the Lord. It's about all their service, gifts, or anything else. They do not know the Lord. Now, it is not our pursuit of this sanctification, holiness, Christ-likeness, godliness that qualifies us to see the Lord. Let's be very clear on that. We are qualified to see the Lord by the Lord. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in His work, apart from any works of our own. So it is not the pursuit of these things that qualifies us to see the Lord. But those who have been drawn by grace to Christ and granted the faith and repentance, which are the means of seeking Him. Those who have that Spirit, this Holy Spirit, have with the Holy Spirit now have holy hungers and holy desires and holy appetites and holy aspirations Holy longings, new holy loves. You have a new holy love for the Word of God you didn't before. It was boring or, or mystifying. You have a new holy love for the people of God. So that's why the Bible says, by this we know we've passed out of darkness into light because we love the brethren. We cannot imagine life apart from regular interaction with Christians. 
you have these new holy longings to live in a holy body without sin, to have a holy mind that's never affected anymore by temptation to sin, and live in a holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people, and at last see the holy, holy, holy God. That is the heartbeat of everyone in whom the Spirit of God dwells, regardless of age. And so anyone who has the Spirit of God dwelling within them, this alien presence from heaven, this second person in their body, who is not a force but a person, and he is not a passive person within them, but he actively brings with him these longings and hungers and appetites and loves. That is what compels the Christian to pursue holiness, to pursue the Lord. Because I submit anyone who is not driven like that to be with Christ, to be like Christ, has not met the man. How could anyone know Jesus and not be compelled to be with him and compelled to be like him? It doesn't say how fast we have to be moving in that pursuit. But it does say the direction in our life must be going. If we're not pursuing holiness, sanctification, godliness, Christ-likeness, we will not see the Lord. Well, if apart from this pursuit of godliness, we will not see the Lord, the question then is how do we do that? How do we pursue the godliness apart from which no one will see the Lord? The answer is in 1 Timothy 4, 7, our text for this morning. The first half of which is my soap opera verse. 1 Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women or old wives' tales, NIV says. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Let me use some hand motions here to break this into three parts that I'll use often in this text this morning. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If your purpose is godliness or sanctification, Christ-likeness, holiness, and it is if you have the Holy Spirit, He makes that your purpose. Part of the coming when he causes you to cry out, Abba, Father, you long to be with him. You long to be like him. That is your purpose if you're a Christian. If your purpose is godliness, how do you pursue that purpose? The text says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I want to bring two things out of this text and spend 80 to 90% on the first one. And it's this, that the spiritual disciplines are the means to godliness. If your means, if your purpose is godliness, how do you get there? What are the means for this purpose? You're to discipline yourself, says the text, for the purpose of godliness. These disciplines are the means of pursuing the purpose of godliness. Well, let's spend a few minutes of what do we mean here when we talk about spiritual disciplines. Well, at the outset, let me justify the use of the term. Every once in a while there are people that, that criticize um, those who use the term saying that's the terminology that's used by people who pursue a mystical spirituality and, and reject uh, largely the scriptures. And, and they, they quote a lot of authors who would reject the Reformation gospel and so forth. And so you're, by guilt of association, you're associating yourself with people who have false teaching because you use this term spiritual disciplines or, or spiritual exercises. Well, the text says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Those disciplines are not mere External things are they not ascetic practices? It's not by outward ascetic things that I do that I pursue godliness. 
Therefore, these are disciplines that are spiritual, aren't they? Spiritual disciplines. And as we'll see in a moment, the King James translates the word discipline as exercise. So that's why for centuries they've been called spiritual exercises. So it's not so much that we use the term, it's what do we mean by that term. Cult groups can speak of the Trinity, but that doesn't mean we don't use the term Trinity. We just make sure we're using it in biblical ways. But what do we mean when we talk about spiritual disciplines? Because the point here, remember, is that these spiritual disciplines are the means to godliness. If we're not practicing these things that pursue godliness, we won't see the Lord. So what are these spiritual disciplines? That if we neglect them, we won't see the Lord. Well, there, as we said in the conference yesterday, there, there can be divided into two large categories. There are personal spiritual disciplines and interpersonal spiritual disciplines. In other words, disciplines you practice by yourself and disciplines you practice with other people. For instance, the Bible tells us that we should pray alone. But the Bible also tells us we should pray with the church. The Bible tells us we get alone and worship God individually, privately. But the Bible also tells us to do what we're doing this morning, to worship God with the church. The Bible tells us we should get into the Word of God for ourselves, reading it, meditating on the Word of God alone as individuals. But the Bible also tells us we should do what we've done this morning, study the Word of God with His people, listen to the preaching of the Word of God. So some of the spiritual disciplines we practice alone, some we practice with other believers. Some are by nature individualistic. Fasting, keeping a spiritual journal, silence and solitude, those are things you do alone. Some of them are by nature interpersonal. Like the preaching of the Word of God requires a preacher and hearers that involves the ordinances, for example. We don't serve the Lord's Supper to ourselves. Fellowship, not just socializing like, like unbelievers can, but fellowship, talking about God, the things of God. That involves the presence of other people. So, first big division. By spiritual disciplines, we're talking about some things we do alone, some things we do with other Christians. And the goal of these things is, as it says, godliness. Which I understand to mean both intimacy with Christ and conformity to Christ. It is by these things that we, be, we experience God, that intimacy with Christ occurs, that the Bible becomes more than just information for us to process. But these are the means of experiencing God. But it's not only intimacy with Christ, it's conformity to Christ. Doing what Jesus did. We want to be like Jesus. We want to do what Jesus did, right? Insofar as sinful humans can. We can't do what he did as God, but we can do what he did as a man. He got alone with God, Luke tells us. Luke also tells us, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So, like Jesus, we want to gather with his people when they gather together to learn the Bible and to worship. Being with Christ, being like Christ, conformed to him. Now, that conformity is both outward and inward. The Pharisees did most of the outward things that Jesus did in terms of spiritual disciplines. They were much into the word of God and prayer and fasting and so forth, but they missed the heart. So we want to pursue the heart of Christ as well. We want to be like Jesus inwardly, not just outwardly. But both of those are needed because it's easy to be like the Pharisees, just pursue the outward disciplines and miss the heart. It's also easy for people to think, well, I'm pursuing the heart of Christ, and, but their life doesn't do what Jesus did. They're not practicing the things Jesus practiced. So this godliness that we're to pursue is intimacy with Jesus, conformity to Jesus. Or we could summarize it even more simply. Being with him, being like him. That's what we're after. To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus. That's the goal. Godliness. 
And the means we're given to do that here are the spiritual disciplines, these personal spiritual disciplines, these interpersonal spiritual disciplines, and both are necessary. And I mention that because we all tend to lean one way or the other. Some of us love to be alone. We love these personal spiritual disciplines. And the attitude of some people can be, I'll just take these and become an evangelical monk. I don't need that ungodly half-committed bunch down at the church. They only slow me down anyway. <clears throat> other people are lean more the other way. And their temptation is to believe, well, you know, if I'm at the church pretty much every time the doors are open, that will somehow compensate for the lack of a devotional life. I don't need those personal disciplines over here. No, that's an equal error. Jesus practiced both. He got alone with God. But it says, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So like Jesus, we want to gather with his people. If anyone ever had a pass for coming to church, it would be Jesus, right? All these people to heal, all the things he had to teach. And yet he would come to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and listen to someone preach. And only a preacher can understand really what I'm about to say. Every Saturday he was there, he must have thought, I can do better than that. Furthermore, how he must have suffered as he, he must have winced so many times. Man, he just butchered that text. Oh, yeah, how do you know? Well, I wrote it. <laughs> and yet there he was. Enduring all of that, but week after week there he was as an example to his people. Now, he's more than our example, but he is our example. So like Jesus, we want to get alone with God, but we want to be with his people. And so that's, that's the goal, remember, to be like Jesus, who practiced both the personal and the interpersonal discipline. So let's back up and get the big picture again. The text says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If your goal is godliness, that's your purpose. How do you get to godliness? It is by means of these spiritual disciplines, which are, first of all, personal and interpersonal. Also, I want to emphasize about these disciplines that we're talking about practices, not attitudes, not the fruit of the Spirit, not character qualities, not graces, but practices. The spiritual disciplines are something you do with the goal of something you become. There is doing and there is being. What we're after is the being. We want to be like Jesus. But there are some things the Bible says we must do to be like Jesus. So in that sense, <clears throat> spiritual disciplines or practices are things you do. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. Joy is not. But prayer done rightly should result in joy. <coughs> Excuse me. The goal is to be like Jesus, fruit of the Spirit, joy. That's what we're after. But how do you get there? By certain spiritual disciplines. Now, you can do the discipline wrongly, and it won't result in joy. It won't result in Christ-likeness. This is the God-given means to it. So that congregational worship, that is a discipline. Patience is not. Now, the goal is patience. It's one of the goals. But that's developed by doing certain things rightly. So understand spiritual disciplines are things you do. Also, we want to emphasize biblical spiritual disciplines. Things that we find taught or modeled in the Bible. And I emphasize that because there are people who will want to make just about everything a spiritual discipline. People say, well, washing dishes is, one of my, is a spiritual discipline for me. Well... 
I guess what they mean by that is they try to be spiritually minded when they're washing dishes and to, to pray while they're washing dishes, to be aware that God is watching as they're doing that. They can commune with God while they're washing dishes. We want to affirm all of that, of course. But washing dishes as a means of experiencing God is not practice taught in the Bible. I mean, it's kind of implied in that those kind of things should happen in all of life, but it's not taught like prayer, like fasting, you know, like, like congregational worship, like fellowship. Things are explicitly taught. So we want to emphasize practices that are taught or modeled in the Bible. Also, we want to emphasize that these are means and not ends. We're talking about spiritual disciplines that are the means to godliness. They're not ends in and of themselves. In other words, we don't say if you'll practice these spiritual disciplines, regardless of what your heart is like, regardless of what you're thinking, if you'll just do them, you will be godly. So that we might think, is he a godly man? Is she a godly woman? Oh, yes. Well, how do you know? Reads the Bible every day, fasts, gives to the church, serves in the church. The Pharisees did all of that. And they were the epitome of ungodliness. Because they saw the disciplines as ends. Am I godly? Check, 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 check. I've done all these things today, therefore I was godly today. And they might have blasphemed the Holy Spirit while they were doing it. Or crucified Jesus on the same day they did all those things. And they're not ends. They're means. The goal is not to practice all the right things. The goal is intimacy with Christ and conformity to Christ. So we need to understand that they're means. They're, they're not the end. They're the way to get to where we want to go. And then let me say this other characteristic about them. That we're talking about practices, biblical practices, that are sufficient for the right ends. They are sufficient. No other practices are necessary to experience God, to become conformed to Christ, other than the ones we find in the Bible. And I want to emphasize that because, once again, there are all sorts of practices being taught today. For example, labyrinth walking is a big one. A labyrinth, you know, is like a maze. And if you ever go to restaurants where they have paper uh, uh, placemats for kids to color on while you're waiting, usually there's a a maze on there, which they start the outside of the circle and go back and forth, back and forth, and all around, and finally they get to the middle. Well, that's what a labyrinth is like. Uh, there are seven of them now in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm from, five of which have been built in the last two years. There's one at a seminary, just a mile from our seminary. And typically they're in a church building, like in the entryway, out there in some in big tile thing in the floor that, oh, may cover an area about as big as is from here to the wall there. Or it may be in a garden, in someone's private home, or as it is in the case of that seminary, on the lawn of that seminary, in a low hedge type of thing. And you walk back and forth, following the path meditatively, and the goal is that by the time you get to the center, you have some sort of experience with God, and then you make your way back out. And this is huge. This is, um, of course, it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it's making a real comeback uh, last August, there was a conference at this seminary, a mile from our seminary there in Louisville, and hundreds of people came. This woman from California came to lead this conference. This is, this is a big deal. Well, whatever alleged benefits people may testify 
accrues to them from practicing this, we can say this. It's not necessary. At the very least, we can say it is not necessary because the Bible tells us that everything we need for our spiritual life and godliness is found in the Bible. So we don't need any other spiritual disciplines other than those found in the Bible. Now let me say this. I wish I'd said this yesterday and, and, and in the early service this morning I didn't. Sometimes people look at these disciplines and I've, you have my spiritual disciplines for the Christian life book out there and there are some dozen different disciplines out there and people think there's no way I can practice all these things. And the impression they get is sort of like uh, I, I'm, I'm like one of the old plate spinners on the old Ed Sullivan show. Those of you who have about the same amount or color of hair as I do know who I'm talking about there. But others of you have seen it somewhere where a guy will get a, this long dowel rod, basically, and he gets a dinner plate on it. And at the top of the thing, he gets that thing spinning around. And so he gets another one, and he gets a plate spinning here, and he gets another one. And he gets about 10 or 12 of these plates spinning. And he gets the last one spinning down here at the end, and then what, what happens? He's got to run back down the other end because this one's wobbling down here, and he gets that one going again. Well, sometimes that's people's understanding of what I'm presenting with these disciplines. You're talking about the intake of the Word of God by reading, hearing, studying, memorizing, meditating on the Word of God, prayer, uh, fasting, silence and solitude, serving, godly learning, journaling, uh, and, and so forth. And see, I don't have, can't do all those things. You realize you can be doing six or seven of those things at the same moment? For example, if you just have a daily quiet time, that's silence of solitude. And during that, you may be fasting on that day. Well, there's two. While you're there, you read the Word of God. There's three. You pray in that moment. That's four. You may, and part of that is going to be worshiping God. There's five. You may write your meditations down in a journal. There's six. There's half of those disciplines being done in one 10 or 15 minute period. In the book, take them out and look at given discipline and plug it back in. Take them all out, and, and, and sometimes people think it's all these different disciplines. But these spiritual disciplines, in summary, are the God-given means we are to use in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. Once again, whatever discipline we're talking about, remember that the most important thing about it is its purpose. That's why we practice it. Not just to practice it to say, I'm really good at whatever this discipline is. Now I've got that one down. I'm really good at that. No, the goal is godliness. Through it to be intimate with Christ and conform to Christ. To be with Him. To be like Him. That's why we practice these things. That's why in my book, every chapter starts with, like... Fasting, dot, 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 for the purpose of godliness, quoting the text. Prayer, dot, 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 for the purpose of godliness. Journaling, dot, 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 for the purpose of godliness. That's when we practice these things. Intimacy with Christ, conformity to Christ. And that has always been the means. You can think back through church history, from Augustine to the Reformers to the Puritans into the 1700s with Jonathan Edwards and his godly wife Sarah, John and Charles Wesley, their godly mother Susanna, George Whitfield, the great evangelist, or into the 1800s with Charles Spurgeon or the missionary Hudson Taylor or the great man of faith George Mueller, or the 1900s with A.W. Tozer or Jim Elizabeth Elliot or Martin Lloyd Jones, all of these great godly men and women did not become godly men and women because God zapped 
them in some way he hasn't zapped us. Now, he may have blessed them in terms of ministry fruitfulness in ways he's not blessed us. But in terms of conformity to Christ, those godly men and women became godly men and women the same way exactly that you and I do. It is through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. And in 24 years of pastoral ministry, I can testify I've never known a man or woman who became godly except by these God-given means. That's how God changes people. Now, God changes people through people. God changes people through circumstances. But there's a big difference in how he changes people through circumstances and people and how he changes people through the spiritual disciplines. You don't have a lot of choice over the people in your life. You may have come in this morning and went, oh, no, he's here. Oh, no, she's here. You don't have a lot of choice over that. You don't have a lot of choice over the circumstances in your life, whether you get colon cancer or not, whether you have an accident or not, or some things like that. But you have all the choice over whether you will be a man or woman of the Word, or whether you will be a man or woman of prayer. And I'm convinced if we are not voluntarily engaging in these personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines, God will turn the heat up with people and circumstances. He'll always use people in circumstances. But if we are not voluntarily engaging in these God-given means by which we experience God and become more like Jesus in order to fulfill this eternal plan that before the foundation of the world, he said that all those who are in Christ are going to be made like Christ. And for all eternity future, we will be glorified to be like Christ. He sent his son to effect that plan, his son to die. He is committed to that plan. So if we're not voluntarily engaged in the fulfillment of that plan, he will turn up the heat. In other areas to make sure we are moving forward with that plan. And so let's make very clear that on the one hand, even the most iron-willed self-discipline will not make us more like Jesus. We don't believe in solo bootstrapper. Paul warned of this. He said, having begun by the Spirit, are you going to be perfected by the flesh? Having been regenerated by the Spirit of God, you think now you can make yourself more godly? No. Only God can make a sinful person more like Jesus. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean we have nothing to do and we just sort of coast on into glory and enjoy the ride. He has given us something to do that are called the spiritual disciplines. It's by these disciplines our job is to take hold of ourselves And bring ourselves before God and God changes us. Our job, use the disciplines as the means of bringing ourselves before God. And he makes us more like Jesus. He enables us to encounter himself. Experience him. Now as a seminary professor, you know I am duty bound to give you at least one Greek word while I'm here today. The Greek word translated in our Bibles, as discipline yourself or train yourself in 1 Timothy 4, 7. And the Greek is gymnasia. And I take the trouble of mentioning that Greek word because you can hear in that our word gymnastics or gymnasium. Gymnasia yourself for the purpose of godliness. Work out these things. Discipline yourself. Go into the gym spiritually. It has a, the smell of a gym to it. It's a sweaty word. And that's what these disciplines involve, effort and sweat 
We don't coast into godliness. There's labor. God doesn't get you out of bed in the morning and bring you over to the desk and put you there with the Bible and make your head go down on the page and your eyes go back and forth. No, it feels all like you. And that's why it doesn't feel easy sometimes, that it's hard, that it's sweaty. Now, the fact that you have the desire to do it and the power to do it is all of His grace and glory. But our responsibility is to get over there to the Bible. It's by these disciplines we bring ourselves before God. And when we look to Him by faith through these disciplines, we can expect to experience God and to be transformed by Him. Illustrated all over the Bible. This is what Zacchaeus did. A wee little man wanted to get to Jesus. He wanted to experience Jesus. He wanted to learn from Jesus. So what did he do? He got hold of himself and took himself into Jesus' way. He got down the path. He knew Jesus was coming, got up in that tree. And so he got in the way of Jesus. And Jesus changed him. And he experienced Jesus. That's what we do with these disciplines. We bring ourselves before God. We get on his highway and he changes us. Let me illustrate it another, illustrate it another way. It's kind of silly, but I think it'll stick. Suppose I wanted to know what it was like to get hit by a semi. Does it just knock you flat as a pancake? Does it knock you 100 feet in the air? What is it like? Well, where would I go if I wanted to know? Now, what if I said, now, I believe it's going to be a spiritual experience. And since this place has been dedicated to such experiences, I'm going to come in here and take hold of this, this lectern here and say, all right, Lord, let it happen. Let the truck hit me. What's going to happen? Nothing, except that Pat's going to call the men in white coats to come carry me away. Why will nothing happen? It's because trucks don't run in here. That's why. If I want to get hit by a truck, where do I go? Out here on 680, right? Where the trucks are. You want to get hit by the truck of God's grace? You want to experience God? Well, don't expect Him to take a dirt road to you. Now, praise God, sometimes we do find Him and meet Him in unexpected ways and places. But if you really want to regularly meet Him, it's your job to take hold of yourself and pull yourself onto the highways He has built, the highways God says He regularly goes down, and you can expect to meet Him on those highways. And what are those highways? The intake of the Word of God and prayer and worship and serving and silence and solitude and fasting and journaling and fellowship and the ordinances and listening to preaching and so forth. These biblical practices God has given us as the means whereby we experience God. And in those experiences, we are transformed into Christ's likeness. So He does the changing. Our job is to get in His way, to pull ourselves into His path. And these God-constructed paths that he regularly goes down we can expect to meet him on are these biblical spiritual disciplines that's why the great theologian tom landry coach of the dallas cowboys for almost 30 years said the job of a football coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order for them to become what they've always wanted to become, Super Bowl champions. In other words, they don't want to get down there in North Dallas in the middle of July with all that heat and humidity and run sprints and have tackling drills and all that. They hate it. But they want one thing more than they don't want to practice. 
They want to be Super Bowl champions. So they will submit to the discipline of a coach who makes them do what they don't want to do. Because they believe he's helping them become what they've always wanted to become. Well, similarly, the job of a Christian is to make himself or herself do what you would not naturally do. That is, pick up these spiritual disciplines. Job of a Christian is to make himself or herself pick up these spiritual disciplines you wouldn't do naturally because you believe that by them you can become what you've always wanted to become. Intimate with Christ. Conform to Christ. And where that analogy breaks down is those guys in those pads down in North Dallas in July don't like the disciplines that lead to being a champion. They don't like to run sprints. They don't like tackling drills. But by his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God gives us an affinity and a love for the means. We love the word of God. We love the people of God. We love the things of God. But it's still discipline to get to them. Just like you disciplined yourself to get up this morning. You didn't feel like getting up perhaps when you got up. You thought, there are other things I can do today. And you came here and you saw other people doing other things that you would have enjoyed doing. But you believed this was best for your soul. And you could find God here. And you disciplined yourself to be here. And if you are here rightly and looking for Christ by faith through the worship this morning, through the preaching of the Word of God, you found Him. You've experienced Him. You've been touched by Him. That's a perfect illustration. You discipline yourself to get here. And if you look for him by faith, you met God. What did you do? You pulled yourself into the path of God. And paths he has ordained are public worship, preaching of his word. So, spiritual disciplines are the means to godliness. You want to be with Christ? You want to be like Christ? That's your purpose. If you have the Holy Spirit, that is your purpose. How do you get there? You discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's about 90% of what I want to say. The other thing in this text is that these spiritual disciplines are expected of us by the Lord. I take that from the very first word, that Greek word, gymnasia. Discipline yourself. That's a command in Greek and in English. That's a command. And we shouldn't be surprised that it is a command because there's always been this expectation of a disciplined spirituality. Because holiness is not an option for those who claim to be children of the Holy One, so neither are the means to holiness. But Jesus has always expected this disciplined spirituality. Listen to this offer of discipleship in Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn. Learn from me. How about this one? Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Follow me. Learn from me. That's basically what the disciples did, wasn't it? They followed Jesus around. And as they did, what happened? They learned. So if Jesus got up and said, all right, men, get up. We're going to Galilee today. They didn't say, well, Lord, we thought we'd sleep in today and go up there tomorrow. If they were going to follow Jesus, they had to follow him in a disciplined way, right? They had to follow him intentionally. Well, of course, following Jesus for them was intentional. You don't follow someone accidentally. I haven't been to your home. Suppose I had a rental car and I was going to your home for lunch today before going to the airport, which incidentally I don't have time. 
Lutch is going to be waiting for me to eat in the car as I got to rush right to the airport when I finish. I have an agreement with the airlines. If I'm not there when it's time to go, they're free to go on without me. So I need to keep my end of the deal. But suppose I were going to go to your, your home for lunch today and I'm driving. I have to follow you on purpose. I can't be looking at the sights of Omaha I've never seen before. I'm following you. So I have to follow on purpose. You don't follow accidentally. You follow intentionally. Are you a follower of Jesus? It's always been a disciplined, intentional following. When Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. You almost hear Timothy say, what kind of spirit has he given us, Paul? He's given us a spirit of power, love, discipline, or self-control. That's the kind of spirit he is. He is a spirit of power, power to obey God now, the power to love God and love others that we didn't have before. And he is a spirit of discipline. And therefore, if this spirit is controlling you, there's evidence of that. Or we call it fruit. You're more loving. Over time, you're more joyful. You experience more peace. One of the things on that list is self-control. Well, that makes sense. If the spirit of discipline and self-control is in you, you're going to be more like him. It's always been a disciplined spirituality. And yet, so many professing Christians are so spiritually undisciplined. And they seem to have so little fruit and power in their lives. They may dearly love the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God, and yet they're, they trivialize their effectiveness for the kingdom of God because they're so spiritually undisciplined. They can be so disciplined in so many other ways, in their work, in their hobby, in their sport. And then you ask them to pick up some spiritual discipline, like reading through the Word of God, and they get through Genesis and halfway through Exodus and then the Leviticus, and they just can't do it. I can't make it through the Bible, though they can do everything else in such a disciplined way. I pastored a woman once who was in her 60s who came to me with tears in her eyes. She had done everything she could do in the church all of her life. She had been a deacon's wife, a Sunday school teacher, a VBS director, Sunday school director. She had been in the choir. She had done it all. And she came to me with tears, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, I know how to do everything in the church, and I don't know how to read the Bible and pray. So many like her, they have spiritually are mile-wide but an inch deep, having trivialized their effectiveness for the sake of the kingdom of God because they're so spiritually undisciplined, as though becoming like Jesus wasn't going to take much effort. People who can say, you know, I want to learn to play the piano. I want to learn to play the guitar so well that I can play in church with these guys. And they know that to do that, they'll have to take lessons. And they'll have to practice every day. And they'll have to do that for years. But people will do it. But then they say, well, I, these spiritual disciplines, I just can't do that. It doesn't make sense, does it? Well, let me close with these three final applications. First of all, there is danger in neglecting these disciplines. Danger in neglecting them. All of us have known athletes or students or musicians who had incredible talent. Every talent and gift but one. Discipline. And as a result, they never lived up to their potential. I was pastor one time of a little girl who at six years old was a child prodigy, both instrumentally on the piano and vocally. It's incredible. And we all thought she was going to be the next Christian music superstar, whatever that is. 
But she was so much better than any of her friends, her own age, she didn't see the need to practice. And as she grew older, she still, because of the natural you know, development of her, of her age, she got better and better and better, but without much practice. And so while all of her friends are still going, na 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 you know, she was all over the keyboard and developing vocally. She came close to time to going to college. We all thought she'd get a major scholarship somewhere, but she didn't practice. And as a result, she got half scholarship, which is a great accomplishment. But what she didn't realize is if you're a music major, they lock you into a room about an inch bigger than the piano six hours a day. She'd never done anything like that in her life. She dropped out after one semester. And today she sings and plays in her church, which is a very wonderful ministry. But compared to what she could have done with the talents and gifts God gave her. I see seminary students who win the prizes, great GPA, they come out. And then they go to the big churches real fast, and their ministry trajectory is like this, like a Roman candle. But they fail to discipline themselves, and they're usually among the first to bomb out. And then I have other students that just plod. They don't win the prizes. They make C's, but they discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. And their ministry trajectory is like this, slow and slow. They're the ones who produce much lasting fruit. You may be the most gifted, most talented person in this church, but the presence of gifts guarantees nothing. Because what God loves to bless more than gifts or talents is conformity to his son. He loves to bless Jesus. He loves to bless people like Jesus. So you may feel as though you're the least gifted, least talented person in this church. But you can discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And if you will, your life will, be, will not be unfruitful. Because the danger of neglecting the disciplines is little spiritual fruit. Your life not counting much for the sake of the kingdom. So there's danger in neglecting them, but there is freedom in embracing them. Normally we think of discipline, we think bondage. I got my students at the seminary, I got to memorize these Hebrew vocabulary words, these Greek verb endings, this bondage. But if they don't realize the freedom it leads to, they missed it. They missed the purpose. Because who has the freedom to pick up a Greek New Testament and read it? It's those who discipline themselves to do the kinds of things that they're doing there. Freedom is a result of discipline in everything. Whether it's an all-star shortstop, whether it's a mom who manages her household well, whether it's a master craftsman, whether it's a successful executive, the freedom that people have in the things they do usually comes after years of discipline. I don't know if you know the name of Christopher Parkening or not. He's one of America's premier classical guitarists. He's a believer who, uh, a strong believer for 10 years. He's a member of John MacArthur's church in California. If he were in town for a concert and he came into this church and we said, well, there's Christopher Parkening. Chris, would you uh, close our service for us? Come up here. Here's, here's a guitar. Here's a stool. Would you sit right here and close our service? But we're going to ask you to do something kind of unique. Would you just improvise? Make up a song. It's, I know it's a bit of a challenge, but just make up a song. Make up something you've never played in your life. Just play it right now on the spot. Well, if he were willing to take that challenge, he would pause for a moment, and then he would begin to play. And this 
man's fingers would dance up and down the fretboard of that guitar and this musical aroma would come wafting out and we'd go, wow. Man, how can he do that? How can he have not only a spontaneity, but a beautiful spontaneity? Because, see, I could spontaneously play on the guitar for you, too. And you'd all be out of here in 30 seconds. But he could have a beautiful spontaneity. Well, when we see like that, we say, that's what I want. That's the kind of Christian life I want, just beautiful spontaneity. I don't want this studied kind of Christian life, this discipline. I want that. Well, where does that freedom come from, Christopher Parkinson? It comes from the discipline of sitting with that instrument six hours every day for decades. That's where his freedom comes from. It comes from discipline. And who has the freedom to quote Scripture? It's those who have discipline themselves to memorize it. You're free to quote all the Scripture you want, right? The whole Bible. Here, I'll get you started. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go ahead, quote the whole Bible. You're free. You're free. No, we're all in bondage to our lack of discipline there, right? The freedom to enjoy God, the freedom we desire in the Christian life, God offers to us through discipline, which leads then to the conclusion that there is an invitation open to all Christians to enjoy God, to enjoy the things of God through the God-given means of the spiritual disciplines. So maybe there's one that you have... Laying aside, you need to blow the dust off and return to. Maybe there's some spiritual discipline that you've been convicted of that you've not ever practiced. But to be more like Christ, you need to pick up and practice. Or maybe there's someone here today who's been thinking that, man, if I'll just work hard and practice these disciplines, that's the path to God. God will open the door of heaven for me. And all you do is make yourself a Pharisee. The epitome of ungodliness. Because there's nothing we can do, even the most disciplined determination to practice the spiritual disciplines, that can ever impress God enough with our life to open the doors of heaven. He is impressed only with one life. That is the perfect life of Jesus Christ, who took that perfect life and offered it on a cross as a substitute, a sacrifice for others who could never reach God. That through repentance and faith in his life and death, resurrection and ascension through what he has done, God would throw open the door of heaven, give us the smile of reception at the judgment, and receive us in himself forever. These disciplines, those who have come to know him, this is the means of enjoying him. And enjoying the freedom of the Christian life that he offers. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, take these words, I pray. And first of all, glorify Christ as beautifully irresistible in the eyes of those who perhaps have thus far seen the Christian life as just a list of rules or things to do. That if rightly done or done enough or with enough sacrifice or sincerity would make them acceptable in your sight when apart from Christ they only make us more damnable. Oh, may we look to Christ as never before and prize and treasure His keeping of the law, His practice of the disciplines as the means by which we are accepted. May our faith be in His work and not ours. But oh, having come to know, know you through Christ, 
Let us find pleasure in you and the enjoyment of God through the practices that you have given us, these highways you have built upon which we may run to experience you. Highways that you run down to meet us if we would only practice them by faith. Cause these things to be picked up in the life of people here, perhaps who have laid them aside. And bring much lasting fruit of this day. I ask in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.